Lord, we thank you for bringing us here today and getting us here safely. And uh, we enter into your word with hope, with a confident expectation that we're going to hear from you. Lord, we know that you speak still now. And it might not be audibly, but you absolutely speak through your word and you can speak uh, in various ways, whichever way you see fit, Lord. And we want to, to hear from you. So please uh, prepare our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes uh, so that we can receive what you're trying to get to us uh, personally. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and, and guide us as we study your word. In Jesus name, amen. All right, if you recall, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 7, as I mentioned, Uh, but leading up to this in Acts chapter 6, we see towards the end of that chapter that Stephen, he's performing miracles. He's preaching the word empowered by the Spirit. He's having a great impact, but he's also getting a lot of unwanted attention from the religious leaders. So the religious leaders basically bring these false witnesses against uh, Stephen and they accuse him of committing blasphemy against four things. The things he commit, uh, they accuse him of committing blasphemy against are God, uh, Moses, the temple, and the law. Okay, so he goes through this whole sermon basically to communicate to the religious leaders that he hasn't committed blasphemy, and actually they're the ones that have committed blasphemy against God, and they've been doing it from the beginning. So Stephen takes the religious leaders through this brief history, all the way from Abraham to Jesus to show the religious leaders that they've been rejecting God from the beginning. The title of this teaching is the same as the last, same chapter, same heart. A history of rejection. A history of rejection. If you would with me, it's Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness... As he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So we see back in Exodus that God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle. And all the people got involved and their hearts were stirred and they made this thing happen. See, the tabernacle was... um uh, somewhat of a temple, but it moved around. And the reason that Stephen is mentioning this is once again to prove the fact that he hasn't committed blasphemy against the temple because God is greater than the temple. He's not bound to a specific place. In fact, it wasn't God that followed the tabernacle. It was the tabernacle that followed God. Let me show you. It's Exodus chapter 40. Once the tabernacle was complete, the text says that they built it exactly the way the Lord told them to build it. So after it's built, the Lord blesses them with his presence. Look what he does in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God didn't need the tabernacle, okay? He didn't need the tabernacle, but he asked him to build it for specific purposes, which we'll get into in a second. But what we see is that after they built the tabernacle, the Lord filled the tabernacle with his glory and he hovered over it uh, as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the cloud or the fire would move, then the people knew, hey, it's time to it's time to pack up. The Levites would pack up the tabernacle and they would follow God wherever he was leading them in the wilderness. Then when God stayed put, the people knew to do what? To stay put. The tabernacle was literally following God. But Stephen is also alluding to something that's absolutely fascinating. His whole point in this sermon is to point to Jesus. And what we see throughout the Bible is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And that's point number one. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Wait, how is this building, this tent, if you will, a fulfillment of Jesus? Now, this is a very in-depth study. We're not going to get into too much detail, but I want to show you a few things in the tabernacle that really give us a picture of Jesus. If you weren't with us last week, we uh, started discussing typologies last week because all the different characters that Stephen is mentioning, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all Joseph, all these people that he's mentioning are types of Christ, meaning their story foreshadows what Jesus would do. It gives us a picture of the Messiah who was to come. Okay, So we'll look at that throughout this text as well. Jesus, as I mentioned, is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. See, with the tabernacle, you had one gate to enter into the tabernacle. There was only one door to enter into the presence of God. What does Jesus say? Well, in John chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. I am the door. He also says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God. Just like there was only one way into the tabernacle. There aren't multiple gates with the tabernacle. There was one. We also see with the tabernacle, there was a brazen altar, and that's where they would provide the sacrifices to God. They would sacrifice these animals on the altar. Now, the brazen altar, it was made with acacia wood and covered with bronze or brass. The acacia wood, it speaks to the humanity of Christ. The brass, it specifically speaks of the judgment of God throughout the Bible. We see that the, that symbolism between, uh, the bronze and the judgment of God. But remember, this is where they would provide a sacrifice. It was Jesus who was sacrificed. He bore the judgment and wrath of God. Why? So that we could be saved. Says it like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, if you want to write it down, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we could become uh, the righteousness of God in Him. He bore the weight of sin. He bore the wrath and judgment of God so that we could enter into fellowship with God. He was the sacrificial lamb, if you will. There was also this laver filled with water. And it was made of bronze, speaking of the judgment once again. But basically, after 
uh, performing a sacrifice, uh, what the priests had to do is wash their hands in this laver before they entered the Holy of Holies, before they entered the presence of God. Why? Because they had to be purified. They had to be clean. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to write this down, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, the Lord is uh, giving us uh, basically direction as to the to how a marriage is supposed to work, right? And what he tells us is as we're the bride of Christ, he washes us with the word, just as we're called to wash our wives with the water of the word. What's the point? The Lord, not only was he the sacrifice for us and he spilled his blood for us, he washes us and purifies us through the word of God. That's why it's so important for us to be in the word of God. As we study the word of God, filled with the spirit, the Lord is doing this purification thing. He's cleansing us. Why? So that we can have access into the presence of God, just as the priests needed to purify themselves, wash their hands before they entered into the Holy of Holies. There was also in the tabernacle a golden lampstand. This golden lampstand was obviously made of gold, right? Uh, some say it was about 100 pounds. Um, and uh, it's really where we get the menorah from in Jewish tradition, right? Because it had seven branches. It had one in the middle and three that went out this way. And there's a lot of cool things with the lampstand. But primarily, when we look at gold in the Bible, it's a picture of deity, okay? The lampstand was a picture of Christ's deity. Not only that, we got to remember the tabernacle didn't have windows and stuff. There was only one source of light in the tabernacle, and that was the golden lampstand. This thing had to be pretty bright to light up the inside of the tabernacle. There was only one light source. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He's the source of light, just as the lampstand was the source of light in the tabernacle. We also see in the tabernacle, they had showbread set up and they would actually have 12 loaves of showbread set up. And the reason they had 12 was because there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? And what this represented was a couple things. It represented God's continuous fellowship with the 12 tribes of Israel. It also, bread, was a picture of life. And what they were being reminded of is how God provides for us both physically and spiritually. And then what does Jesus say? In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. See, God gave us Jesus and Jesus is the one that satisfies us physically and spiritually. He gives us life abundant here on earth and he gives us life eternal in heaven. We also see in the tabernacle, there was a golden altar of incense and it burned uh, incense twice a day during uh, burnt offerings specifically. And what the connection was in the tabernacle was prayer. And that's how we see Jesus fulfill this piece of the tabernacle. What do I mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says that Jesus makes intercession for us. He is the high priest of high priests, and he's constantly praying for us. I don't think we think about this enough, right? You'll ask friends to pray for you. I ask, for, I ask people to pray for me all the time. I need it, right? But we don't always consider the fact that Jesus is praying for us constantly. He's constantly petitioning to the Father on our behalf. 
He's praying perfect prayers. When we don't know what to pray, the Bible says the Spirit prays through us. But Jesus is praying for us as well. Now also, the golden altar of incense was just outside the Holy of Holies, okay? So this gives us another picture. The Holy Holies, Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which we'll get into in a second, represented the presence of God. See, it's prayer. It's prayer that's the avenue by which we can enter into the presence of God. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 4, come boldly before the throne of grace. In prayer specifically, we have access to the presence of God. So obviously, as I mentioned, uh, after that golden altar of incense, um, there was the Holy of Holies, but it was separated by a thick curtain, okay? And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus is even the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. We can't get into this in too much detail, but just a couple points for you. It was made of acacia wood and covered with gold. I already told you acacia wood was a picture of his humanity. Gold's a picture of his deity. Why? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. But there were also special things that were inside the Ark of the Covenant. What did we have? The Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is the only one that could fulfill the law. He's the only one that kept the commandments his entire life. We also see that Aaron's rod that was in there, It was the rod that budded, right? Think about this. Imagine if you had a walking stick, right? A walking stick is what? Dead. Walking stick is dead, right? It's not connected to a tree and all of a sudden it buds. Like what? What's the picture? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That which seemed like it was dead actually came to life. So we also see here that as there was this veil... That separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. What happened? When Jesus died on the cross, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, what does it say? The veil was torn, right? The veil was torn. The curtain was literally physically torn. What is the point of that? Well, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have access into the Holy of Holies. We truly have access to the presence of of God himself. And if that's not enough, we know John picked up on this as he intros one other thing. Also in the tab- or sorry, in the Ark of the Covenant, you had manna, right? And Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. I forgot about that one. Uh, but in John chapter 1, as John intros this gospel, he talks specifically about the deity of Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus was God in the flesh. And then he tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh, God became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This word dwelt is actually the word tabernacle. The Lord became flesh, he became a man, and he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He is the embodiment of the presence of God himself. So, back to Acts chapter 7, 
we see Stephen, he's mentioning this tabernacle, not just because God isn't bound to a place, but because the tabernacle points to Jesus. Everything that he's bringing up points to Jesus. Acts chapter 7, verse 45. He then goes on to say, Which your fathers, having received it, in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the, day, uh, until the days of David. Okay, so he goes from Moses, something significant he did, obviously building the tabernacle, and then he transitions that to Joshua. Okay, what can we learn from this? Well, Moses is always a picture of the law. Moses is a picture of the law. Why? Because God gave Moses the law. But guess what happened? Moses never entered the promised land. You remember why? Do you remember why Moses didn't enter the promised land? Remember what happened was there was this time period where the Israelites needed water. Okay. And Moses asked God, Hey, we need water. And God says, strike this rock, this specific rock, um, with your staff and water will come out. And what happened? He struck it and water just flew out of this rock. Well, there was a time where they needed water again. So Moses asked God, he says, God, we need water. And what did God tell him? Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Then what did Moses do? He struck the rock twice. And God says, you're not entering the promised land. And you, we can look at that at first glance and go, wait, God, that seems like a harsh punishment. You've been in the wilderness with these people for 40 years. Another 40 years, you left your comfort zone in Egypt. Oh my gosh, look at all these things Moses did for God. And God didn't even let him enter the promised land. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just what Moses did. It's to give us a, a, a picture of what Christ would do. See, the first time the rock would be struck, Paul tells us that that rock in the wilderness that God provided water from, that rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. In his first coming, he'd be struck. In his second coming, he'll only be spoken to. You won't strike the rock at his second coming. He's going, he came as the suffering servant the first time, but in his second coming, he'll come as that conquering king and there will be no one who strikes them. So this is part of the picture and why God's punishment was so harsh for Moses. But we also see another thing that the Lord's trying to teach us through this. Though Moses had the law, he never entered into the promised land. Why? Because the law can't get you into the promised land. The law can't get you into heaven. Who led the people into the promised land? It was Joshua, right? Joshua in the Hebrew is Yeshua. In the Greek, it's Jesus. See, the law can't get us into the promised land. The law can't get us into heaven. All our efforts, all our works, all our righteousness, it's but filthy rags. It cannot get us into the presence of God. But you know who can? Yeshua. Jesus. So this is what we see through the story of Joshua. The law won't save us. Only Jesus can. This is point number two. Jesus delivers us, not the law. Jesus delivers us, not the law. If we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. See, the point of the law, yes, it had a purpose, it served a purpose, it was a tutor to point us to Jesus. Let me show you, Paul asked this question specifically in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. 
He says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed would come to whom the promise was made. So we see the point of the law was to point out our transgressions to help us realize we can't keep God's standard. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put into it, we can't keep the law of God so that we would notice at some point in history, one would come that could keep the law. That's the seed that he's referring to. Jesus specifically. Only Jesus can keep the law. If we put our faith in our works, that's not a saving faith. It's putting our faith in Jesus. He's the one that delivers us. The hope is that we'll recognize the fact that we can't keep God's law, that we are sinners and we're in need of a Savior. This is the purpose of the law, among other things. Now, What should we do with that? Do we take that and go, well, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. It's by faith, right? Paul tells us certainly not. And he tells us also in Romans chapter seven, in Romans chapter seven, that if we're, if we accept Jesus Christ, we've entered into a different type of covenant. He makes this clear. We're no longer under the law. Romans chapter 7 verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. See what he says there? I'm we're, I mean, you, whoever knows the Lord is dead to the law. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the old covenant. We've entered into a new covenant. And what does he give us as an illustration of what that covenant looks like? It's a marriage covenant. We're the bride of Christ. So that certainly doesn't mean that, oh yeah, we should just do whatever we want. No, we're called to submit to our husband, Jesus Christ. He's the groom and he's a perfect groom. So it's not just about following the law. It's all about following Jesus and being obedient to what he calls us to do anything and everything. It's the Lord that delivers us, not the law. Acts chapter 7. Verse 46, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling. He's talking about David right now. Um, Who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a temple. So what happened? David wanted to build God a temple. Okay, but God wouldn't allow David to build the temple. Why? Because he had too much blood on his hands, right? He killed way too many people. So God said, you can't build a temple, but I'll tell you this. I'll let Solomon, your son, build the temple. But just because God let Solomon build the temple doesn't mean God told them to build the temple. God didn't direct him, hey, build a temple for me. Build a dwelling place for me. Yes, he told them to build a tabernacle, but the people took it upon themselves, specifically the leaders then, to build a temple. This is point number three. Just do what God asks. Just do what God asks. What's my point? Well, that's the point. Let me explain. When we do more or less than God asks, that's when we get into trouble. 
And I think often we obviously logically always think of, okay, do what God asks. Um, I better do what he's asking me to do. But I don't think we consider uh, the reality that so often we can fall into this place that we're doing much more than God asks us to do. Yes, Jesus says, go the second mile. But specifically, we see the Hebrew people and we could even fall into this too. We keep adding to the law of God. We're adding to his direction. And when we add to the Lord's direction, even our personal, even in our personal life, that's when we can get into trouble. Remember, the Israelites did this. They were known for this. They had the Mishnah, which was basically uh, uh, all of God's 613 laws that they pulled from the Torah. Then they had the Talmud, which was a commentary on the laws and what they meant. And what we see, and Jesus even confronts the religious leaders about this, they basically started making their own laws and following their own laws, and they got completely away from the heart of God and why he gave those laws to begin with. good example is in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we see here, it's a Sabbath, okay? Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and to begin uh, and began to pluck heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Not lawful in whose eyes? Not in the Lord's eyes, in their own eyes. They're with God. Don't you think Jesus is going to say something if they're not doing something right? He had no problem with calling out his disciples in sin. They're not doing what is unlawful in the eyes of God. They're doing what is unlawful in the eyes of man. What was it? Well, it wasn't a sin in their eyes that they were picking the grains and eating them. The problem they had is that the work it took to break open the grains and eat them, that was too much work to perform on the Sabbath. We see that the Hebrews, they ended up adding all these laws to God. Specifically, we'll talk a little bit more about the Sabbath, just a few things that they weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath that God never told them that you couldn't do. Okay, They said, you couldn't even take a bath on the Sabbath. That's too much work. You know, scrubbing your arms and your body, like with the hair washing. Nope, that's too much work to perform on the Sabbath. You couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. So they would actually count their steps. Don't take that 3,000 and first step. You're breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't lift more than a dry fig. Anything that weighed more than a fig, that was considered work. Also, this is my, maybe one of my favorite ones. If you spit, you weren't allowed to spit in the ground, okay? Because if you spit in the ground, it could, uh, you could actually, that could give you uh, enough of a divot to plant a seed. So basically spitting in the ground is next to farming. And that's working on the Sabbath. This is truly what they believed. And this is what they created. They kept adding to what God asked them to do. And they completely got away from the heart and why God asked them to do it. God gave man's Sabbath to give them rest, not to cause more problems. But we can do this as well. We always have to ask ourselves, did God actually ask me to do this? And I'm not saying like every single thing you do, you should have direction from the Lord. That would be great. But a lot of times we just got to know the Lord's heart and what the Bible teaches and, and just try to follow it the best to our ability. I'm talking more along the lines that we add to God's direction and again, get ourselves in trouble. Sometimes we add things on our plate. We just keep piling them on, piling them on, piling them on. Why? Some of us find satisfaction in a busy schedule. 
But is God asking you to put those things on your plate? Is God telling you to do those things? Are you just doing more than God's asking? You're saying that it's spirituality when actually it's not. It's legalism. This is the problem that the Hebrews had. So they end up building the temple. God did not ask them to build the temple. He didn't tell them not to, but he didn't ask them to build the temple. And the temple really didn't represent God the way the tabernacle did. I'll show you why. He says it here in Acts chapter 7 verse 48. Who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? See, I've created everything. You think I need a place to dwell? I dwell where I want to dwell. I'm not bound to a building. See, what's interesting here is now he's emphasizing the temple, right? Because they accused him of committing blasphemy against the temple. He's telling them, remember, God never said to build a temple. God doesn't need a temple. Yes, he told him to build a tabernacle, but the tabernacle moved from place to place. Why? Because God dwells where he wants. He can move from place to place. Yes, he's omnipresent and he's all present. We talked about this uh, last week, but there is a reality in scripture that there are certain places and certain times where the Lord makes his presence known. Okay, so we see that he would do this in the tabernacle and he even did it with the temple once Solomon built the temple. But the religious leaders were worshiping the temple. They held it in such a a high regard that they once again neglected the one for whom the temple was built. If you remember, Jesus came into the temple several times to teach the word. And what did the people do? They didn't recognize Jesus. So basically what he's saying, Jesus came into the temple that you uh, hold in such hard regard that has really become an idol in your life and you miss the one who you built the temple for literally was there. He was in the temple and you completely missed it. He goes on to say, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is where he like really hammers it home, okay? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's point number four. Open your eyes and ears. Open your eyes and ears. They were closed off. They closed off their hearts. They closed off their ears. They closed off their eyes to really see what God was doing. They missed it. Now, this term stiff-necked is mentioned over 20 times in the Old Testament. And God is specifically speaking about his people, speaking about the Israelites. They have this habit in this culture of being stiff-necked. What does it mean to be stiff-necked? Well, you ever uh, sleep on um, like the wrong side and you like get your neck kind of twisted, right? And you're like, what? You're stuck like this, right? You can only look forward and you like look ridiculous, right? This is how they were spiritually. They could only see what was in front of them and they missed God doing all these things all around them. See, the Lord showed up and because they were stiff-necked, they missed it. Do you only see things your way? Do you only see things that are right in front of you? Do you only see your plan, what you think your purpose is, your agenda, and you miss what God's doing all around you? That was what the religious leaders were doing. Hey, 
Stephen, open your eyes. Look what God is doing. You're only looking in front of you, but God is working all around you. He also says they're uncircumcised in heart and in ears. What does he mean by this? Well, circumcision, as we mentioned last week, I don't know if I mentioned it in both services, but circumcision, even from the Old Testament, we see it was a, 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 an external act that represented a position of the heart internally, okay? It was always really a spiritual thing, okay? Yes, you did this thing, you performed this thing, males were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day, but it was really representing the fact that you were set apart unto God. It was supposed to give you a picture of that. I actually have a relationship with the Lord. So, what he's saying, in other words here, is your faith is all external, Your religion is just that. It's a religion. And it just looks like the appearance of something, but it's not of the hearts. What Jesus came to do is to address the depravity of man's hearts. And these religious leaders, they missed it. Jesus gives us an example of this as he's speaking of the religious leaders specifically. Probably some of the very same guys that are here. He refers to them as whitewashed tombs. Why? Whitewashed tomb looks beautiful on the outside, but there's a dead man inside. And that's what he's saying. You look like you got it together, but really your heart is wicked and deceitful. You're not right with God. He says they're uncircumcised in heart and in ears. What does this mean? Or in other words, your ears are clogged with pride. Okay, Your ears are clogged with pride. You got so much pride that you cannot hear. You can't hear what the Lord's trying to speak. You only hear what you want to hear. God was speaking to them. He was literally speaking to them, teaching them, and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to recognize that they were sinners and in need of a Savior. So they closed their ears. And then he says, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's telling them that you're straight up resisting God's spirit. You're resisting God. You're not observing, again, what God is doing all around you because of your stubbornness, because of your pride. You're missing the works of the Holy Spirit. You're closing your heart to the conviction of the Spirit. Stephen was trying to get something across to them. Interestingly enough, it says that he was filled with the Spirit. Like even when he's talking, they're resisting the Spirit right then on the spot. They didn't like what they were hearing. Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Murderers, basically saying you're following in the uh, pattern of your forefathers. They've persecuted the prophets from the beginning. You didn't like what the prophets had to say, so you killed them. Okay, now Jesus, the prophet of prophets, literally the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah was speaking to you and you killed him as well. And obviously they're going to kill Stephen. They didn't like the message. So look what happens. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. So Stephen 
empowered by the Spirit, right? Because that's what this book is really about. It's uh, Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. That's exactly what Stephen's doing. He's operating in the power of the Spirit and it's cutting to the hearts of the religious leaders. But just getting cut to the heart isn't enough. It's how they respond. You ever get cut to the heart? Where you know, oh, that affected me, that impacted me. Maybe it's conviction of the Spirit. I know God is telling me this through this individual, through my devotions, through prayer, through whatever. And ah, that got me. That hit home. And then do nothing about it. See, they recognized the power and the impact of Stephen's message. Yet they didn't respond to the truth because of their pride. They just got angry. It's so important that we respond specifically to conviction. When the Lord convicts us of something, speaks something into our life, gives us that little nudge like, hey, hey this thing needs to, to change. Uh, uh, you're going this way. I want you to turn around and go this other way. It's so crucial that we respond in humility, being teachable. See, everybody wants discipleship. Until you give them hard truth, okay? And then when you give them hard truth, sometimes <laughs> there's a resistance, okay? The reality of it is, it doesn't matter well whether the Lord uses a pastor or a donkey. When the truth is communicated, we're responsible to receive the truth. Stephen speaking truth, and these guys, they want no part of it. So what they do is they gnash their teeth at him. Gnashing their teeth, your teeth like grinding your teeth. I don't know. They're like, is that like scary? I don't know. I don't think that, that would be very intimidating. I guess they thought it was intimidating. Whatever. Uh, but the interesting thing is here is that the Bible speaks a lot about gnashing their uh, gnashing teeth um, in uh, the negative sense, and we actually see this is a fulfillment of Scripture from Psalm thirty-seven. Psalm thirty-seven, verse twelve. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. It's exactly what's happening. They're plotting against Stephen, bringing false witnesses so that they can justify stoning him, which they're going to do, and they gnash at him with their teeth. It's also something else interesting. When you think gnashing of teeth, what do you think of? Jesus said a lot of times, right? People in hell are going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think that these guys think that they'll be gnashing their teeth as long as they will be. But this gnashing of the teeth teeth is actually likely going to last forever. We don't know of all these guys who repented. We do see Paul repents. But for the rest of them, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the God, uh, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Peter, filled, empowered by the Spirit, he preaches this powerful message. He sees God in his glory, verse 56, and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This was a unique situation. Uh, across the board. 
He's preaching this message. He looks up. He actually sees God. Okay, uh, there's no indication that everybody else saw God. And then it makes you wonder: How did Luke, the author, know that Stephen saw God? The Holy Spirit just must have uh, revealed it to him because we see Stephen doesn't have many words left in his right. He's, he's going to die, so he's not going to be able to tell Luke. So this must have been revealed to Luke what Stephen saw that he actually saw God in heaven. This is amazing. This is fascinating. But what happens here? He didn't see the God of glory until what? Until he bore witness of the God of glory. See, so often, if we want to see the God of glory working in our lives, we've got to bear witness of the God of glory. This can happen on so many different levels. Sometimes it's sharing your faith with an unbeliever. Okay, I'm going to operate in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to share with this person. And often you'll see the God of glory show up uh, sometimes it's through salvation in this individual. Uh, other times it was just, man, I know this was from the Lord. I just had a guy uh, in our last service. He's like, the Lord just put it on my heart to speak to these two Muslim guys and they didn't accept the Lord, uh, but they let me pray for them that God would open their eyes to see who Jesus is. That's a big step. When we open our mouth and share about the God of glory, we often see the God of glory at work in our lives. It's not just for the unbelievers. Sometimes it's just through conversations with believers. Sometimes it's a conversation with uh, a wife or a husband speaking about what God's doing. And then there's this extra intimacy that happens there in that marriage dynamic. There could be conversations that you have with friends and family members and all these different things. The point is, Stephen had to open his mouth first before he saw the God of glory. Not that that's the only way we can see the God of glory, but that's what we see in the text. And he actually sees God in his glory. Not only that, it says that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, which is interesting. Why? We always see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. We don't know why he's standing. There are a lot of different theories out there. He might have been... uh, uh, giving Stephen a standing ovation, standing up for him. He might have stood up to receive him. Uh, we don't know exactly, but it is interesting that the Lord is standing. Acts chapter 7, verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. What did they do? They got loud and they closed their ears. Why? They didn't want to hear the message anymore. They didn't want to hear the truth that Stephen was speaking. So they closed their ears and they yell real loud. They proceed to run at Stephen to stone him. Acts chapter 7 verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is point number five, last one. If we speak like Jesus, then we'll be rejected like Jesus. If we speak like Jesus, then we'll be rejected like Stephus. Uh, Stephus. (laughs) Stephus is a new one. (laughs) but when you look at this story there are a lot of parallels between Stephen and Jesus and we've talked about this right he was falsely accused Uh, some of the words that he says the prayers that he prays the power by which he's communicating how he cuts uh, to the hearts of these religious leaders with the words that he says but one huge thing we have to point out is that this is a fulfillment of the very words that Jesus said right he told us in Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5, the last beatitude is this one. 
verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus promised that this would happen to believers, that there would be persecution, that there would be rejection. Now, Stephen, he's the first martyr. He's the first martyr that we see in the church. We obviously see the prophets of old that were martyred as well, but he's the first um, person from the church, first believer after the resurrection that gets martyred. But just as Jesus said, if we're truly bearing witness of Christ... We can expect some form of persecution. We can accept some form of uh, uh, rejection. As um, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he said, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. It's something that we should expect. If we're answering the call of a disciple, purposing to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, walking the way that he walked, talking the way that he talked, even thinking the way that he thought, we can expect some form of rejection might lose friends, there might be separation with, with family members, even spouses, the Bible talks about that. But Stephen was a man that stood up for the truth that he believed in. Now, if you look back at Acts chapter 7, it says they, they laid their garments at the feet of of a man named Saul, a young man named Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus, obviously, who would later become uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, probably the most powerful apostle that ever lived as far as what he wrote, his ministry, his missionary journeys, uh, the things that he discussed. He had an absolutely powerful ministry. Now, it says they laid their clothes at the feet of, of Saul, which leads a lot of scholars to think that that Saul was like the head honcho during this scenario. We can't say for sure. It does say in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that he consented to the death of Stephen. And he says it again in Acts chapter 22, meaning he approved of the death of Stephen. So it could have been that uh, Saul was just on board with the stoning of Stephen, or it could be that Saul had the, the final say there and directed this thing to happen. We can't know. At the very least, he supported this. And what's interesting is right after this, what happens? Saul goes on this rampage. He starts persecuting Christians, taking them out of their houses, taking them to jail, having them killed. Why? I believe he couldn't get this thought, this image out of his head. This man spoke with power. We didn't like what he had to say, so we stoned him. He claimed to see God. He started praying for us. And I think Saul of Tarsus was doing everything in his power to silence the truth. He couldn't grasp the fact that he killed an innocent man. He had an innocent man killed, or at least he approved of it. So he goes on this crazy rampage trying to silence the church. I don't think he could accept this to be true. Until we get to Acts chapter 9. And he says, he prays in verse 60, 
Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He prayed for the very people that were persecuting him that God would forgive them of the sin. Guess what? God answered this prayer, at least in part. Why? Because Saul of Tarsus will be forgiven and he will be entrusted with the ministry specifically to the Gentiles. We never know how our prayers will be used. We never know how impactful a prayer will be, especially praying praying for people we don't like, praying for our enemies. You never know how God might answer that prayer, use that prayer to take that person into a deeper relationship or a relationship at all for that matter with them and use them in an amazing way, an amazing way to, to increase the kingdom of God. We can never minimize our prayer lives, even for our enemies. So he asks the Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And we had said this, he fell asleep. Now, when the text says he fell asleep, he's not, they're not saying, Luke isn't saying that one of the stones knocked him out and he just fell asleep for a while. He's dead, okay? Stephen is dead. When he says fall asleep, he literally means death. We see this throughout the Bible, this term asleep referring to death. Now, some people take this and, and say, yeah, this is, this is, this is, the Bible teaches soul sleep, that our, our spirits or souls, they go to sleep for a while until the Lord comes back. It's, it's just not biblical. When the Bible is using this term asleep, it's talking about the body specifically. The body has gone to sleep, but guess what? Spirits with the Lord for those that are saved. 2 Corinthians 5.10, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Stephen immediately went to be with Jesus. See, Stephen, he spoke like Jesus and he died in a very similar manner to what Jesus experienced on the cross. He was able to stand up for Jesus when those around him completely rejected Jesus. And when we look at this world, there is more and more of a rejection of Jesus. Where you got more people, you're going to have more people that reject Jesus. That's just the reality of it. But Stephen didn't allow this to instill fear in him. He didn't allow this to deter him from what he knew to be true and what he was called to do to continue to preach about Jesus despite the cost, despite the fact that the world around him would reject him because of the God that he follows and the same holds true for us. We talk like Jesus, we act like Jesus, we worship Jesus. We can expect the world to reject us. See, Stephen, he's a man that stood firm in the truth. He wasn't worried about rejection. We see no evidence of the fear of man in this guy. He just has the fear of the Lord all the way. And we have a choice to make. We can be like a Stephen. And I'm not saying everybody here is going to be martyred. I doubt that will happen. Who knows? But I doubt it will happen. But to be able to stand up for the truth, to be able to share about Jesus, even in the, when the world around us uh, rejects His name, rejects our faith. Because here's the reality. We either stand up for Jesus and get rejected by the world, or we stand up for the ways of the world and we get rejected by Jesus. He drew the line in the sand. He says, you're either for me or against me. We're not standing on both sides here. We got to choose a side. 
I would rather be rejected by the world than rejected by Jesus. I pray that we would be a people that are able to stand strong, courageous, and bold in the midst of rejection because we know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And if we're in him, there's nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for... Stephen and and the powerful ministry that he had and it doesn't seem like he had a very long ministry but you used him profoundly uh, and you're still using him today at least his story God and we just uh, pray that we would uh, pull the things from this text that you want us to take home take to heart Uh, ultimately Lord we know that the world is going to reject us if we love you and I pray that we wouldn't fear that that we would be okay with it. Not that that would be easy. We know it would be, uh, will be difficult, but I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to give us the boldness and courage to face this world and stand firm in your truth despite the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.